Hear that? That's the sound of my just got a payment worth three months of payroll face, also known as my pay face. It happens when I can accept credit and debit cards, bank transfer, and mobile pay with Intuit QuickBooks. That's payments made easy. Wait, I thought this ad was over. Oh no, here comes my holding in a squeal in front of a customer face. And my, whoa, getting paid twice as fast face. Thanks for that, QuickBooks. QuickBooks payments account subject to eligibility. Twice as fast based on customer use comparison from August 2019 to July 2020. New hot and iced sunrise batch coffee from Dunkin'. A bright and balanced, full-bodied blend. Brewed so you can get summering from sunrise to sunset. And even after that. Because that's when you can show off those string lights you hung in the backyard. Or re-hung. Enjoy a medium, hotter iced sunrise batch coffee for $2. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusions apply. Six months later, in New Orleans, my father and I had been traveling, you see. And he took me to the harbor where the tall ships docked. He brought me onto a large mercantile ship, led me below deck, and then slit my throat, leaving me to die in a pool of my own blood. I remember him standing above me, chanting, Death to you, my son! Death to you, my son! He was wrong, of course. He wasn't immortal, and I wasn't dead, despite his best efforts. I survived. I learned, I plotted, for eight long years. Welcome to Baron Banjo. This episode's made from the tape-recorded journals of the musicologist, Dr. Asa B. Quickly, the holder of the Henry Roland Byrd Chair of American Studies at the University of Oxford, the one in Mississippi, of course. At this time, Dr. Q is engaged in a dedicated study of the two men referred to in Southern folklore as Bear and Banjo. This unlikely pair seems to have appeared at key moments in the development of the mid-century American musical vernacular, while for the most part eluding the historical record. But Dr. Q is determined to separate the myth from the actual history. The following is a letter from the office of Sir Gregson Vlad III, a mysterious mid-century industrialist, former music publisher, and deranged lunatic driven mad from his genetic past and his father's cruelty. He was allegedly schooled in a strange form of voodoo taught to him as a young boy when his father, Gregson Vlad II, a prosperous Canadian fur trader from the deepest Carpathians in what is now Romania and was then known as Transylvania, abandoned him on a ship in New Orleans when he was just nine years old. His father was an evil man whose only love was profit. Certifiably insane himself, he murdered the boy's mother in cold blood at the dinner table and forced his then nine-year-old son to bury the body on their land, claiming the voices of his ancestors had commanded him. He then left his only son behind after a six-month journey to New Orleans in an effort to divest himself of heirs. Thinking he would live forever owing to his strange beliefs he carried with him from the old country in Transylvania. Students of literature and late-night horror films will recognize Transylvania as the location of Bram Stoker's Dracula. While most know the legend, the actual history is much darker. I turn to the renowned medieval historian and Dracula expert, Dr. Leslie H. Phillips from Columbia University in New York. Most people only know Dracula from the 1897 novel written by Bram Stoker, who was in fact an Irishman. The real-life inspiration was in actuality based upon the 15th-century ruler Vlad III, later known as Vlad the Impaler, and finally, Vlad Dracula, a sobriquet he adopted from his enemies who referred to him as Dracul, which in modern Romanian is translated to mean the devil. Vlad's act of cruelty are legion for the sheer scale of their horror. Throughout his 50-year reign, 
Beginning in 1427, Vlad unleashed a tsunami of genocidal violence across Central and Western Europe, unmatched save for Adolf Hitler and the Nazis some 500 years later. I now quote from an original text chronicling his reign of terror firsthand. Vlad had a big copper cauldron built and put a lid made of wood with holes in it on top. He put the people in the cauldron and put their heads in the holes and fastened them there. Then he filled it with water and set a fire under it and let the people cry their eyes out until they were boiled to death. And then he invented frightening, terrible, unheard of tortures. He ordered that women be impaled together with their suckling babies on the same stake. The babies fought for their lives at their mother's breasts until they died. Then he had the women's breasts cut off and put the babies inside head first. Thus, he had them impaled together. That is the awful history of Sir Gregson Vlad III's blood ancestor, a direct descendant and progenitor of his family name. His father carried that same cruelty in his heart, as did his father before him, like some sort of generational madness passed down from generation to generation. Although coming from prosperity and raised until the age of nine in gilded luxury, he spent the bulk of his youth until the age of 17 in abject poverty, living alone after escaping from an orphanage where he was brought after being discovered abandoned on that mercantile ship by his father. Taken in by the Jesuits, he was mercilessly abused by the other boys, as well as the priest. Upon escape, he found himself in an abandoned shotgun shack in the bowels of the French Quarter. He became a pickpocket and petty thief to survive. Along the way, he was schooled by one of the 15 voodoo queens scattered about 19th century New Orleans. It's from them he learned the medicinal arts of the religion, its ability to raise the near dead, also known to some as zombification, and the use of the voodoo doll as punishment towards others. From here, he plotted his escape from New Orleans, his return to his ancestral home in northern Ontario, the aptly named Wolf Lodge, and the revenge he would take upon his father, who had left him in New Orleans to die, or at least to disappear. Luckily, Sir Vlad had no heirs to terrorize or to pass on his evil genes. Instead, he focused his ire on competitors to his business or those who displeased him in the course of his work. Bear and Banjo, as their luck was drawn, would soon be ensnared in Sir Vlad's sinister web with dire consequences for the duo to come. Dear J. Banjo and Sir Bear, I would like to invite you to my compound in North Ontario, just 200 miles north of the city of Toronto. As you know, I purchased the publishing for two of your copyrights, and I am curious to know if you would have more songs which could be commercially exploited. I intend to give you an opportunity which could enrich all parties. If you have never been to Canada, then you are in for a real treat. My manservant slash personal secretary and business confidant Rodolfo will greet you and accompany you on the journey once you cross the border. At Wolf Lodge, my compound, we have amazing food and spirits that would make any common person salivate. Our wine is delicious. You are more than welcome to spend the night after lunch, and we can have discussions about your future, the state of the music business, and your hopes and your dreams. Please, let me know if you accept this invitation. Intentionally yours, Sir Vlad. An invite from Sir Vlad was not a favor, but a command. To turn him down was to put your life and career in peril. Known to collect and hoard copyrights of music for which he saw promise, he summoned Baron Banjo to his remote Canadian lair known as Wolf Lodge. Not only did he keep meticulous records of meetings throughout his career, but he also had a dictation device for all of his correspondences to be later transcribed. Sir Vlad was a paranoid man. Every interaction was a possible moment of leverage to later be used as blackmail his invitees none the wiser. 
The Canadian Museum of Recorded Technology has hundreds of hours of Vlad's archives that are organized effectively enough for us to pinpoint this era of time, allowing us to reconstruct this key moment using their own words. The Invitation North would land on June 17, 1961, which also happened to be the 77th birthday of Sir Gregson Vlad III. Robert and Banjo, his gift to himself. You are listening to a song called My Intentions by Sir Vlad. This song made waves when it came out at the height of the player piano era in 1926, just before the ubiquity of the phonograph and records would replace sheet music as the pre-recorded scrolls that player pianos operated upon as the dominant force in music. Through my research, I was able to find the foremost expert on the history of the player piano, Otto von Reich from the University of Leipzig in Germany. A player piano, also known as pianola, is a self-playing piano containing a pneumatic or electromechanical mechanism that operates the piano action via programmed music recorded on perforated paper or in rare instances metallic rolls. The rise of the player piano grew with the rise of the mass-produced piano for the home in the late 19th and early 20th century. Sales peaked in 1924, then declined as the improvement in phonograph recordings due to electrical recording methods developed in the mid-1920s. The advent of electrical amplification in home music reproduction via radio in the same period helped cause the eventual decline in popularity, and the stock market crash of 1929 virtually wiped out production. The jazz age and the urgency of the Roaring Twenties and its need for speakeasy entertainment made Sir Vlad into a millionaire many times over and probably a billionaire by today's standards. He controlled production and sales of the piano roll, those perforated scrolls of paper that operated the player piano through his company, Vocal Style. The final piece of Sir Vlad's wealth came from what was known then as the reproducing piano. These were piano rolls consisting of the live performance of famous musicians from the era. In the 1920s and earlier, Sir Vlad, through vocal style, controlled some 75% of the marketplace. Some of the more renowned musicians included Jelly Roll Morton, Fats Waller, George Gershwin, Gustav Mahler, Scott Joplin, Les Copeland, Blind Boone, and countless others. Sir Vlad was known for his ruthless accounting practices and for cheating musicians out of their royalties. It was also rumored that a deal made with Sir Vlad was a deal with the devil. To sign with him was to sign away your soul. In the parlance of serial killer profilers, the man was a collector. Or as he once remarked, I don't just own music, own musicians, body and mind. Under contract, they are mine. In the summer of 1961, Bear and Banjo had all but exhausted their career. We've chronicled their various attempts, both legal and illegal, artistic and crass, to break through in any meaningful way. It appears that their impact was felt more from the artists they encountered than from any music they themselves made. It's as if they themselves possess genie-like powers to make others famous while they themselves toiled in obscurity. By the time they received the letter from Sir Vlad on that fateful day in June of 1961, they'd grown all but desperate. Unbeknownst to anyone at the time, save for perhaps Sir Vlad, Banjo had had a string of bad luck that ranged from extensive gambling debts owed to various organized crime figures Plus, he was being hounded by various figures in the upper echelon of the intelligence community to continue his recording work for them. Finally, and perhaps most frightening of all, due to his own evil and vindictive nature, America's top lawman, J. Edgar Hoover, was making it his business to personally destroy Banjo after he split on his agreement to work for Hoover, bugging celebrities and politicians in Hollywood. 
If it were not for the tapes in his possession, he may have already been either incarcerated or worse. He believed that one more big score would allow him to pay off the mob and then disappear and begin life anew under an assumed name. Perhaps allowing he and Bear to restart their music career under new names, free of the scandal and stigma of the past. If it sounds far-fetched, it's because it is. Desperate men can convince themselves of damn near anything if they believe it will solve their problems in the here and now. Sir Vlad, it seems, came to them at a moment of great need, just when they needed a break the most. He would refer to this simply as leverage, while for Baron Banjo, fate had to intervene to give them one more bite of the apple. And so here we are again, another shadowy figure with a dark past further obfuscating any real facts for us to tie together the career of Bear and Jay Banjo. The fact that their only official contractual business dealings were with this elusive shadowy figure is yet another mystery for us to uncover. You see, after Baby Dance and Me and My Banjo were mild novelty records, Sir Vlad sought out the publishing and bought them. How he found these songs and why he wanted them is unclear. Somehow, though, he knew of Banjo's problems and also understood what motivated both of them. The man was a puppet master on many levels. Despite his penchant for secrecy, Sir Vlad was meticulous about his records, journals, and notes and correspondences. He had a henchman slash personal secretary who kept all of Sir Vlad's information rigorously filed, notated, and archived. In typical form for the henchman of an evil genius, he went by the singular name of Rodolfo. We base much of the following episode from these files and recordings. After receiving the letter of invitation to join him at Wolf Lodge, Bear and Banjo naively assumed that somebody, no matter how obscure, had finally recognized their talent and they would finally get their due. The ego can blind a man from the truth, and once again, it would prove to be their undoing. It's crazy how much we have to pay for outdated, impersonal health care, and even crazier that we all just accept it. It's time to face facts. Healthcare is backwards. Luckily, there's Forward, a new approach to primary care that's surprisingly personal and refreshingly straightforward. Forward never makes you feel like just another patient. Backed by top-rated doctors and the latest tech, Forward gives you access to personalized care whenever you need it. Using in-depth genetic analysis and real-time blood work, Forward's top-rated doctors provide you with in-depth insights to better understand your genetics, mental, and physical health. They then create custom, easy-to-understand plans to help guide you to achieving long-term health. With Forward, you get unlimited in-person visits with your doctor and access to care anytime via the Forward app, all for one flat monthly fee. It's time to stop accepting backwards healthcare and start moving your health forward. Visit GoForward.com today to learn more. That's GoForward.com. Hi, I'm Jamie Lee Curtis. I am host of the new podcast, Good Friend on iHeartRadio. On Good Friend, I am talking about friendship, sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly. I want to talk about conflict resolution, about making new friends, about keeping friendships alive through very difficult times. Listen and subscribe to Good Friend on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. I picked up Jay Banjo and the bear at the Canadian border. We made our way to a bed and breakfast called the Old York Saloon. We didn't have enough time to make it all the way up to Wolf Lodge, so we decided to decamp for the night. It was a somewhat quiet night at the saloon. However, Bear and Banjo seemed to recognize a blues musician known as the Hawk. He was a grisly Canadian performer, and as he was working the ramshackle stage playing his rock and roll music, he recognized the duo as well. Ronnie Hawkins, better known as the Hawk, was a staple of the Canadian honky-tonk scene. And his backing band, better known as The Band, would later rise to infamy as they joined with Bob Dylan to take him electric. The Hawk would later appear in Martin Scorsese's film, The Last Waltz, and take his place as the man who started the band. But true success had always eluded The Hawk, and he became known for his ability to toil in obscurity, or as The Hawk himself once remarked, I'm the king of the small-time boys. My first professional gig was in 1952 
competition was a little rough, well, money was a little scarce, and our music was the lowest form of music there was. It's just a fad for kids, people would say. It would only last a month or two, they would add. They stopped saying that, though, pretty quick. Playing that loud, awful noise that terrified folks seven nights a week. The road was hard. I was grinding that 100,000 miles a year on that double yellow line. I barely had enough money to feed myself, much less sleep in a hotel. So when I did close my eyes, it was the backseat of my car. When I needed gas, I just pulled out my Arkansas credit card. Oh, heck, bud, what's an Arkansas credit card? <laughs> you know, you take a rubber hose and an old five-gallon can and start siphoning off that gas from the folks' tanks. I was on a rock and roll player in the South that always had chapped lips. <laughs> All the time. Belching up the gas fumes on the stage. I could shoot a mean fireball with that was left in my mouth. Eat my ass, kiss. I was doing that stuff in the early 50s when Gene Simmons was still eating hummus at his daddy's kibbutz in Israel, man. <laughs> the Hawk recalled meeting the mysterious duo and imparted some honky-tonk advice to them. So I said, well, where are you all going? You up in Canada trying to make some deal happen? Well, it was great, I said. You don't want to be pirates all the goddamn time. Look at me. In life, you can choose to be a firmer or a pirate. You dead? I know that you've both been pirates, and the pirate life agrees with you all for the most part. But the thing with pirates is that they go around the world. They hurt people. They rob people. They steal and they bury their treasure and it's really hard to locate that treasure after you've moved on to another coordinate. Maps and whatnot aren't as reliable as banks or grain silos. Now, farmers, though, see, they have a square plot of land. They tend to that land and they take care of everything on their plot. They farm and use the resources from the land accordingly. They feed their family. They don't want more than the land can provide, and farmers often live a lot longer than pirates. <laughs> you know? Less chance of mutinies and murders, and I've never heard of a farmer walking the plank, man. <laughs> so you gotta ask yourself when you wanna be a farmer or a pirate. I can tell from the looks of you guys that you guys are a bunch of pirates, man. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's all fine with me. I like drinking with pirates, but I would never want to be one. Now, I don't know what my actual point was in telling them all this, but I had a hunch. Well, they were at a crossroads, so to speak. <laughs> and I love giving advice. With their cryptic advice in hand, Bear and Jay Banjo proceeded to get very, very inebriated with the hawk. They drank until they could drink no more. Then they drank some more. Rodolfo was worried the duo would be in no shape for a meeting with such important intent the following day. However, right as rain, they woke up fresh as a daisy and ready for the day ahead. The duo finally arrived at Wolf Lodge. It resembled nothing less than a castle from Transylvania and the old country. Recently, pictures of the property were posted online by Sotheby's Real Estate who were selling the property on behalf of a 26-year-old app developer billionaire. He'd owned the property for only three days when he's discovered in his underwear on the nearest access road, literally running for his life and screaming at 2 a.m. He's picked up by the local police, who determined he was terrified of something in the home, and then released, refusing to return to Wolf Lodge ever again. Thus, for the first time, the public's getting a glimpse of this Baroque interior. Thanks to the photographs posted, we can see where they met, which was the main dining room. Its decor quite simply betrayed the inner mind of a madman. The room was dark, save for the presence of a massive candlelit chandelier. On the outside of the room were massive oil paintings depicting 500 years of Vlad's bloodline. Various weapons, from swords to mace, knives and guns, were mounted on walls along with full sets of armor standing at attention like actual knights. Finally, a massive fireplace roared, and on its gigantic mantle rested a series of skulls in glass cases. Why they were there remained a mystery to be answered later. Recordings from the Vlad archives do the rest. Thank you for having us. This is a hell of a place. 
I hope you won't think me rude if we skip the pleasantries and get right down to business. Time is precious, and I wouldn't want to waste yours or mine. There in Banjo were folks that liked to get down to business, so this was music to their proverbial ears. Plus, they were very hungover. The quicker they got this out of the way, the quicker they could start drinking again and offset the effects of the previous evening. They spoke for several hours about everything that Vlad and his publishing business, Vocal Style, could do for the duo. They, of course, knew absolutely nothing about this man's past or what he was capable of until later in the meal when it would slowly dawn on them that they were sitting in the presence of a lunatic, intent on doing them harm. I don't suppose you've heard of Toussaint Laroque, have you? He was a famous beaver belt trader, and when I was young, he took me under his wing. Taught me everything he knew about shipping and trade routes. But the most important thing I learned was that in any business, whether it's beaver pelts or music, the key is innovation. And at some point, you have to take the humans out of it, or we are all just hamsters on a wheel. Mr. Banjo, I'm curious. Do you consider yourself a hamster? More like a squirrel, if you catch my drift. You're joking. Hmm. I like that. I appreciate good humor, Mr. Banjo. Where would we be without wit? I shall rephrase my question. Do you want to spin on a wheel? Or do you want more than that? More, I guess. Absolutely more. I'm glad to hear it, because we are now at the dawn of a new era in the music business. It's no longer about the songs, it's about the distribution. What if I told you that I could make it so that your music was heard both far and wide, to the ends of the earth? I'd say I was interested. Bear and I have been trying to figure out some kind of thing forever. In the future, music will be fed to audiences like a convalesced person eating through a straw. All the flavors will be variations of itself, and they will suck down whatever masticated goo we feed them. Well, Bear and I got a lot of songs, that's for sure. If you want to hear a few, I got my banjo here, and Bear is all warmed up and ready to go. Let me be clear, the songs themselves do not matter. Answer me this. Do you want to make money? Well, yeah. This is about inventory and verticality. Now your music is constructed to amuse, and it fits within my model. That's it. Play, don't play. It makes no difference to me. The model, the algorithm, as my scientists call it, is never wrong. If you like, I can sit here with a smile on my face and tap my toes whilst you strum out a little ditty. Perhaps after we have something to eat, this will make more sense. Sure, let's eat. Full stomach, concentrated mind. Right there? Mmm, something like that, I suppose. When I was young, and exploring the trade routes, I had one of the most delicious experiences of my life. I ate a Georgia peach. It's not every day that a son of a Canadian fur trapper gets to eat a delicious Georgia peach. As I get older, Every time I have a sumptuous steak, I think to myself, wouldn't this be even better with a peach? It's amazing what sensations stay with you. Yeah, I like a good peach. Sure. When I took Wolf Lodge from my father, all we had on this land were pine trees and cedar. But I wanted peaches. The agriculturalists told me we're too far north to grow the fruit. That what I wanted was not natural to our environment. So I did what I always do in these situations. I bent nature to my will and brought forth my fruit as if ordained by God himself. I changed the ecosystem of the soil and planted my own Georgia peach trees. With enough money, and raw determination, anything is possible. So what would you will into being, Mr. Banjo, huh? Fame? 
fortune? Freedom for yourself and Mr. Bear? I'm, I'm sorry you lost me. I don't know about peach trees and whatnot, but yeah, fame, fortune, all that stuff's good. I'm talking about destiny, Mr. Banjo, and having the will to rise to that moment and seize it in your hands. Just like this peach I'm holding. Would you like to try one? Rodolfo, bring me a peach for Mr. Banjo and his friend, Mr. Bear. I want you to eat this peach and taste your destiny. Actually, if I'm being totally honest, I don't care much for peaches. I was just trying to be polite before. I'm not really big on sweet things, generally. That'll be a no from me, too. I'm just gonna cut off a little piece here. Try this with your steak. I promise you're going to love it. It's so juicy. I don't know how else to say this, but uh, I'm not putting that in my mouth. I don't want to eat peach. History is hard to make. And sometimes if you miss a beat, history misses you. Being a real part of history is like being a superhero. Artists like the Beatles, the Bob Dylans, or if you need contemporary references, the Kanye's or the Beyonce's, they give up any opportunity afforded in life for being normal in exchange to receive access to all the ideas and audience of the universe. Sometimes it takes one person to give them this access. A Brian Epstein, a Scooter Braun, or some little devil may appear at just the right time and offer a taste, a bite of the peach. Everyone wants it. But if you had this opportunity, a real chance to open the universe, would you take a juicy bite? Or would you say, no way, I'm not eating that? Pass on access to it all? Pass on infinite adoration and wealth? Would you try just a little longer to go it alone? Or would you put aside your pride and self-worth and just sink your teeth in? You're going to put a lot of things in your mouth that you don't like in this life. What's wrong with trying my peaches? If we're to be partners, I need to know we have trust. Now open wide. I don't know how to say this, but I'm not putting that in my mouth. I don't want to eat a peach. I'm certainly not allowing you to feed me like a baby. No offense, but that's just plain weird, sir. Look, man, we came out here to sell you some music. How about we forget about the peaches and we play you a couple of damn songs? How about that? In a bizarre act of dominance, Sir Vlad was testing to see how determined the duo were to comply with his demands. Perhaps this would indicate how much they would compromise down the line when real money was on the line. Jay Banjo was being affable and trying to sort out the con here. Bear was having none of it. No one was force-feeding Bear. And further to that, Bear openly said to Banjo, You so much as put that goddamn peach near my mouth, and I'll make sure you come to regret it. <laughs> bear, bear, come on, let's, let's sing. Forget the peaches. Let's, let's sing some songs. How about that? This irritated Sir Vlad. Silence! Both of you. You have insulted me in my home. I offer you the gift of fruit. You eat the fruit. Full stop. I like peaches with my steak, and I'm trying to share this beloved ritual with you. Why do you spit in the face of my largess? Listen, man, this isn't complicated. We simply don't want to eat your peaches. Understand this about Mr. Banjo and myself. Our entire career, we've done things the hard way. You have no idea the places we've been, the compromises we made. Death and failure have haunted us from the beginning. We've been face to face with forces much bigger and more terrifying than you, and we haven't backed down yet, and I'm not about to start now. Allow me to tell you a story. As you know, I'm an old man in my 77th year. In fact, today is my birthday. Well, golly gee, happy birthday. You don't need to bother with that now, son. This dinner and our business dealings are over. You've offended me in my home, and I've decided that I can no longer trust you. Which is such a shame. I was going to make you both wealthy men. Beyond your wildest dreams! Whoa, 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 now. Hold on, hold on. I know you need the money, Mr. Banjo. Desperately. I know all about your debts to various figures in organized crime. Nasty business with dangerous people whose patience surely ran out long ago. But that's nothing compared to the wrath of Mr. Hoover, is it? 
How long until he catches up with you? Oh, I know about all of it. Your scrape with the Angola prison system, that was a close one, wasn't it? How many states are you boys fugitives in, exactly? Suitcase full of money, but the money's long gone. And the Cadillac that no longer runs. Tick-tock, boys, tick-tock. You've been awfully lucky up to now, but your kind of luck always runs out eventually. Sir Vlad, we have no idea what you're talking about. I'm offended. We're just a couple of musicians, nothing more. Rodolfo, please, bring out that reel-to-reel player with the tapes we were sent from Mr. Hoover. Please, play the tape. This is Jay Banjo on October 11th, 1954. I am now sitting inside the bedroom of one John Roselli of the Los Angeles arm of the Chicago mob. I have installed bugs in the person's bedroom, living room, kitchen, and telephone. Oh. My. God. It's too late for God, Mr. Banjo. He can't help you. If you want to pray for help, pray to me. Mr. Roselli, if he were to find out about those bugs, what do you think he would do to you, huh? It is my understanding from J. Edgar that he fully intends to tell him. Would you like me to call in a favor? Uh, you could do that? I'd do most anything for my friends, Mr. Banjo. Are you my friend? Yep, yes, you are my friend. I am not so sure we are friends, Mr. Banjo. Friends don't refuse hospitality. Friends don't insult their host. Uh, uh, are we talking about the goddamn peach again? Jesus H. Christ, fine. Give me a bite. If this is such a big deal, I'll try a goddamn peach. You're worse than my fourth ex-wife. Happy now? Trust me, I'm, I'm chewing. Wait. Oh. Oh, wow. This, this is a good peach. Banjo. Mouth closed. We talked about this. Sure, but... It's just so good. You should try some. No thanks. I knew you would like it, Banjo. And now that we are friends again, I would like to tell you a story about that peach. Okay. Look out that window. You see that tree standing there? Tall and strong. That is a peach tree. And it is fortified with the blood of my ancestors. Say what? You see... Many years ago, when I was just a boy, no more than nine years old, my dear mother was murdered by my father in the very seat in which you are now sitting. I sit where my father sat before he sprang to his feet and plunged a knife into her heart. Mr. Bear sits where I sat as a boy, watching it all happen. My dear mother lay motionless, blood pouring from her lifeless body while her head rested on the table at the very spot where your stake now sits. My father then ordered me to take my mother outside and bury her beneath the peach tree. But first, he demanded that I remove her head. It was a test, he said, of my will and obedience. So I obeyed and cut off my own mother's head. My father then set it above the fireplace while I went outside to deal with the rest of her. Mm, Jesus, that's weird. Six months later, in New Orleans, my father and I had been traveling, you see. And he took me to the harbor where the tall ships docked. He brought me onto a large mercantile ship, led me below deck, and then slit my throat, leaving me to die in a pool of my own blood. I remember him standing above me, chanting, Death to you, my son! Death to you, my son! He was wrong, of course. He wasn't immortal, and I wasn't dead, despite his best efforts. I survived. I learned. I plotted. For eight long years. If you worked in the music business, you might start to understand why Sir Gregson Blyde was so impeccably suited to work in this most ruthless of industries. He was figuratively and literally cutthroat. 
finally, I returned to Wolf Lodge on my 17th birthday, 60 years ago today. And I found my father, now an old man, sitting in the very seat that I now sit. I walked in and he looked up. He did not recognize me. Father, it's me, Vlad. He shook his head. Impossible, he whispered. But then I showed him the scar across my throat, and I could see the recognition in his eyes. And then the fear. Son, forgive me, he whispered. But I had been dreaming of this day for eight long years. I pulled out a machete from the overcoat I was wearing and chopped off his hand. He screamed and pleaded for his life. Then I chopped off his legs. Finally, I removed his head, just like he had done to my mother. And I placed it on the mantel next to hers. Just in case you were wondering what those skulls were that sit in the glass cases. Mom and Dad. I took what remained of my father and buried him right next to my mother. In the year that followed, the peaches that grew from their blood were bigger and more flavorful than any peach I'd ever eaten. I honor my father this way, for his blood sacrifice, for making me into the man I am today, every time I eat a peach. Now, Mr. Banjo, you have eaten from the very same tree. You have feasted on the blood of my ancestors. We are now one. May I be excused? I think I'm going to be sick. I gotta admit, it's a really good peach. Introducing Mordeo, a new iHeartRadio fiction thriller podcast from the creative minds of Blumhouse and Crypt TV. One month after two brothers disappear in the Shenandoah Forest, the lone survivor of the pair emerges, starving, disoriented, and traumatized. I can hear it. What are you talking about? It's in my head. It whispers to me. It says, it says I'm going to die out here. What happened out there in the woods and what dark secrets still remain, threatening to create something unspeakable? Look at this skull. No way this thing is a deer, though. Look at the size of the teeth. Predator for sure. Beware, the monster you're running from might be yourself. This, this is what I am. This is what I'll become. Listen to Mordeo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Transportista is a podcast that tells the story of a pilot who, using a clandestine cell phone from inside a prison in North Carolina, claims to have worked as an entrepreneur and air logistics coordinator in the international drug trade for some 30 years. I'm transportista. That's what I am. My name is John Gibbler. I'm a journalist based in Mexico. I was approached to see if I would be interested in looking to this pilot's story. Yeah, I said, I'm interested. I contacted a number of reporters who had either met, interviewed, or reported on this pilot. He didn't want to tell the truth, he wanted to sell the truth. And began to piece together a portrait of a man behind bars, obsessed with telling and selling his own story. From Detective and Exile Content Studio, this is Transportista. Listen to Transportista on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The rest of the night was perfunctory and polite, with Jay Banjo and Mr. Bear playing along with Sir Vlad, hoping to get away from the dining room table and away from this lodge. They now knew the man was insane and wanted nothing to do with him. Sir Vlad sensed their newfound reticence, and his enthusiasm for the duo was diminished as each drink turned into another. By the end of the night, the three of them seemed downright bored to be in each other's company. The next morning, there was no mention of any record deals or future takeovers. The duo simply packed their bags and said farewell. They all agreed they would be in touch soon. They made their way back to the Canadian border and started heading towards New York City. Rodolfo would accompany them on the last leg of the voyage. It would have been rude to invite the duo all the way up here and not give them a ride back. 
They were somewhat confused as to why they even made the journey in the first place. The evening had been awful, terrifying in fact, but Sir Vlad seemed less a terror than downright insane. Those stories about heads and blood and Vlad the Impaler were obviously bullshit. He was just trying to scare them. Phased, they spent one more night at the pub and once more bumped into the hawk. The drive back to Toronto was very quiet. Banjo didn't say a word to Bear, but they were fiddling around with their instruments working on something. Watching them work was quite fascinating. They would communicate with each other in a sort of telepathic way. By the time we got back to the old York, we popped into a tavern for some spirits and food. The bar owner had recognized them from passing through the day before and noticed their instruments and asked them to play. Bear and Banjo hopped on stage and played beautifully, like they'd been practicing for this gig for weeks. Afterwards, they decamped with their friend Ronnie Hawkins, whom they referred to as the Hawk. The guys seemed shook, man. I told them, man, you got to keep your spirits high if you're going to make it down that road. I told them all about the differences between careers and reputations. I wanted a reputation, not a career. Careers come and go. Reputations, they last forever, man. No one really knows how long a career will last. I told them that I don't want to be like Elvis, and I don't want to deliver hit songs all the time. I want to party, man. I want to live that good life, man. I gave them a tip, but there was some new sound coming out of New Orleans. And if they found it, it could take them to that next level. Now, they seem intrigued. I gave them as much info as I could, and I sent them on their merry way. I told them, man, you gotta be careful, though. That sound is evil. It's pure evil, man. Sometimes when you mess with the devil, you never know what's gonna happen. They said they already messed with the devil. And they told him to shove his peach up his ass and take the high road home to hell. <laughs> well, that made me laugh. Those guys are born losers. Just like me. Beyond having an insatiable wanderlust, both Bear and Banjo had this burning desire and need for both success and money. Not that there's anything wrong with either. Bear wanted money and success mainly so he could play the music the way he wanted. But Banjo's situation was way more complicated, as Sir Vlad had elucidated over dinner. Needless to say, Bear and Banjo were intrigued. If you told the duo, don't put your hand on the tailpipe, you could sure as hell predict they would have blisters on their paws right quick. With a new goal in mind, they knew how they could get down to New Orleans, maybe even be paid to do so. It was settled. They would be headed down to New Orleans to track down this mystery sound. Before they took off back down south, they hit the stage and apparently brought down the house with the hawk jamming along beside them. When I got back to my employer's house, one of the staff from the kitchen told me that the peach J. Banjo was thought to have consumed at the hands of my employer was spit out in a napkin on the floor. It is Sir Vlad's opinion that when offered the peach, one will always chew and swallow. It's the law of mutual reciprocation, and all humans are somewhat programmed to give once they receive a gesture. But that J. Banjo and the bear are strong-willed and intent on doing things their own way. Sir Vlad always said collecting souls is a bulk business. So leaving a few scattered ones along the roadside is of no consequence in the grand scheme of things. Eventually, everyone gets hungry when starved for a long enough period. We all cave into temptation and eat the peach. With that, I watched him scoop up the remainder of the peach and walk it out to the tree where he ever so carefully buried it. Along with the peach, he carried with him two dolls. One resembled Mr. Banjo, the other Mr. Bear. He buried them as well. Then he walked back inside. He stood silent for a moment, staring back at the tree from the window, and then finally spoke. Rodolfo, pack my things. We have a date with destiny in New Orleans. And now we have set the stage for the back half and final resolution of this season of my podcast. 
With no contract secured or a future at hand, Mr. Bear would follow Jay Banjo into one last quagmire. And as you now know, Banjo is in desperate need for funds and is hoping his financial salvation lies somewhere down the road. But with the sinister Sir Vlad headed their way, the future is anything but clear. Coming up on Baron Banjo, Dr. Q needs to crack the code and find out once and for all what happened to Baron Banjo. As the duo make their way south for one last tour, they get involved in the most calamitous album cover shoot of all time and get pulled in by dark magic, calling them to an evil musical destination. Tonight's episode was written by Jingle Jared and Jimmy Jelena. Baron of Banjo was created, executive produced, and directed by Jingle Jerry. Executive produced by Dennis Quaid, T-Bone Burnett, and Jason Pooh Bear Boyd. With original music by Jason Pooh Bear Boyd and Jingle Jared, that's Baron of Banjo and T-Bone Burnett with lyrical contributions from Bob Dylan. All music from Baron Banjo is produced by T-Bone Burnett, and all episodes edited by David Gulick. Additional score by Jeff Peters and Jeff Judy. Story editing by Connor Ratliff and associate produced by Emily Bolka. Produced by Tom Piazza, Noel Brown, Brian Wallen, Jesse Corwin, and Dan DeMole. Co-produced by Rosanna Arquette. For episode music, please visit the iHeartRadio app or wherever one finds good music. Baron of Banjo is a production of Jingle Punks in partnership with iHeartRadio. Special thanks to John Ingrazia of Vector Management and Gary Morella of Mono Music. Krista Lenny from Maiden Creative, Gail Troberman, Connell Byrne, and the entire iHeart team. An extra special thanks to Sue Turner for being Baron Banjo's head of tour security. For a full list of production credits, behind-the-scenes footage, and source material, please visit baronbanjo.com. Jingle Punks is an anthem company. Fifteen minutes could save you 15% or more. My dad used to say that. Sure, yeah. It's from Geico. Yeah, whenever I would ask my dad for life advice, he'd sit me down and say, Son, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. And look at me now. A well-adjusted adult with a drawer full of plastic bags I'll never use. (laughs) Okay, I'm confused. Was your dad a licensed Geico agent? Nah, he was just a real good dad. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. From iHeartRadio and the producers who brought you Murder in Oregon and Happy Face comes the new true crime podcast, Murder in Illinois. Chris is unable to recall what happened. We were not to say anything to anybody. These drugs alter brain chemistry. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco. Join me for Murder in Illinois, who killed the Vaughn family. All bets are off. Listen and follow Murder in Illinois on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.